1: Of conspiracy theory and the paranormal meet. And now, we join the show already in progress with your hosts, Adam and Serfiel.
2: We are back on the paranormal. And uh, no more roundtables for, for for a little while. I think we're roundtabled at, out at this point.
1: We have a single guest.
2: Yeah, we have a single guest, as we will have um, going forward for the next few weeks. Um, but we have on the line, we have Dr. Heather Lynn, and she's written a book called Evil Archaeology. And um, it's a very interesting book. I highly recommend it. Um, it's a little bit of everything that's kind of archaeology and weird history and dark kind of stuff and welcome to conspiracy normal dr lynn
3: thank you for having me
2: thank you for for being here um let's kind of go through like your background and how you kind of got into the study of archaeology basically
3: well i have a what i'd like to say is a uh non-traditional, traditional background. Um, I I have a traditional background in the sense that I you know have a degrees and that sort of thing, um, but non-traditional in the sense that uh, I didn't start off just right from high school to college and, and I didn't have an easy way through it, um, which is sort of, I think, one of the things that got me looking in a, an alternative direction. I left home when I was 16 years old to travel the country and just, just basically um, lose my mind my mind in a sense. And I went everywhere looking for answers. And I was just, you know, really wild. And uh, I didn't finish high school as a result. But Mm. I did learn a lot of things about um, different religions. And I visited a lot of temples and churches. And I was a seeker. So I was always looking for answers. And part of that seeking led me into diners and late night places and just all sorts of strange places where I could meet interesting people who had stories, stories of the paranormal and unknown and I just was fascinated with those stories. And of course, in addition to that, it was late night radio. And that kept me company as well on those long journeys across the country all by myself. And so um, that sort of started it in a way, my, my interest in the alternative. And then, of course, that's not sustainable. And so I went back to college and I uh, started at community college and I studied archaeology. I worked in archaeology, then I went um, to, you know, go on for my bachelor's and you know, so on and so forth. Uh, um, and so it was sort of a, you know, an, I don't want to say it was an uphill battle because it was definitely, you know, something fun and enjoyable and it's been a great blessing. Um, um, but it's, it, was, it, it was like a ra- ratcheting. And as a result, you know, I went through different schools. As I said, I got my associates at one school and then, of course, a bachelor's um, and then you know, all the way to, um, you know, University of New England, and just all over the place. So I had a, a very interesting course where the community college I went to uh, was in an urban location and it served a, usually an underserved population. And I worked with people from different backgrounds, and and uh, you know, this whole journey. I guess I was always always one of those people that well, that I, I wouldn't say was anti elitist, certainly not anti-intellectual, but. I I didn't realize that I was starting as I would move up the ranks to not actually fit in. And I started to see around me this sense of entitlement and Mm -hmm. elitism and and then the political aspects of it. And it didn't sit well with me. Uh, But, you know, I figured it was part of the whole thing. But, you know, I still had this interest in the alternative. And I kept it under wraps for the most part, because it was made very clear when I first got into the basic archaeology classes, that this was not something we even entertain. In fact, if we're going to speak of it or address it in any way, it's only to debunk it. And, you know, I was given an assignment to actually debunk, you know, choose a, a, from a list of authors that, uh, you know, they put on a board. And uh, of those authors were some that I was familiar with through you know, late radio and uh, books and whatnot and i thought oh well you know i may not agree with all of their theories but um you know i certainly do like them and i like that they exist and it's something that got me involved and so you know i just it sort of started from there i think the turning point for me though was when i contacted michael cremo as an undergraduate and he was the uh, co-author of forbidden archaeology and oh. a very yeah very uh,
2: <laughs> I, I, bet the, the ser- the, I bet the more serious i bet the your kind of coll- your colleagues probably loved that I didn't tell him. Ve- I knew what I- oh, okay, because he's real <laughs> controversial. I
3: didn't yeah. Tell him. yeah, very much. And that, that's sort of the thing I started to pick up on. And I thought, um, well, I, I was getting a little at my wits' end. I think what started happening was while I was still going to school, I was doing um, assistant teaching, and I was working at an archaeology lab. And part of what they were giving me to do was the assignment of grant funding, like finding grants. And, and uh, you know, I just started to see the corruption, and with regards to money and, and why it was being raised and I thought that we were raising money for the lab and it turned out um, I was supposed to actually just raise money for the professors to have a an income that was on the side that they didn't have to really do much for. And I thought like a summer income and I'm,
1: hmm.
3: I'm like, wait, wait a minute. And a lot of this came out during cocktails and going to people's homes and going to a lot of these um, museums that, you know, would close down to the public and inside would be, you know, stakeholders and there'd be cocktail hour and just lots of money being thrown around. And, and I just, it just didn't sit well with me. And and I, again, I think it's because I came from that non-traditional background, if you will. And uh, so I I started to get a little disenchanted and that's when I emailed Michael Cremo and I I said, okay, listen, this is what I'm going through. And I think I just want to, you know, throw it all away and just, go on and I I have an associate's degree that's enough isn't it can't I just go and do and whatever and you know being a little impetuous and he gave me a really thought felt and I think reasonable response that set me right he said you know you could stay in academia and push the envelope but you could only push it so far because of the obvious political clashes and those sorts of things or you could leave all together but the problem with that is that, you know, that I would lack the credibility. And, you know, basically he gave me gave me some common sense information, sort of talked me off the ledge. And uh, I took that advice and I thought, you know, from here on out, I think what I'm going to do is just play double agent. I'm going to go on and take what I can get, get the, get the tools necessary to understand sources and, um, you know, just all the tools. And then when I'm done with this, I'm going to go to the dark side, as that has been <laughs> told to me is what I did. Um, that's what my colleagues actually said. Why have you gone to the dark side? And, you know, this sort of thing. And so uh, uh, that's what I did. I thought, well, I'm I'm going to have time and this is going to be the direction. And, you know, uh, I thank Michael Cremo for that, in, that advice. And like I said, talking me off the ledge. Um, I think just the sheer fact that he responded um, was enough to motivate me to, you know, maybe stick it through or something. It was just that push that I needed at the time.
2: So then you went ahead and you got your, like I said, you you have your PhD and all... All that,
1: no? Yeah, I have a master's
3: okay. in history. I have a, actually a PhD in comparative religion and a doctorate in education from the University of New England, and I have nice. some associated. I have some associated um, certificates and different things that are continuing education credits in osteoarchaeology and archaeoastronomy, um, because of course you never are done learning. That's something that you know. If people right. say, "Oh, career student." No, it's very important because um, technology changes, methods change, and it's important to stay. You know, up on the trends and the research and the things that we need to do. So,
2: well, I want to ask you this: When you um, first contacted Michael Cremo and you were kind of going through this kind of crisis, um, there's turning point. How long ago was that?
3: Wow, I haven't actually stopped to think of that. That was, was 2019, well over a decade ago. Okay, yeah, I was <laughs> yeah, just okay. I was
2: just wondering because it it, it seems now that Guys like, you know, well, Graham Hancock, I guess, is a good example of this. It seems that some of the even more of the mainstream archaeology is starting to accept some of the things that like Hancock was talking about in like the 90s. And I don't think Cremo's ever going to be accepted <laughs> by the mainstream because of all the stuff about skulls being found in millions of years, um, sediment and all that mm, kind of stuff. But Yeah, yeah. But, some of
3: that. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, you
2: know, like since then, you know, like Gobekli Tepe has been found and all this kind of interesting finds and discoveries. And, you know, that's been the big thing lately has been like this whole thing about the younger Darius. And, you know, we're good. We're pretty good friends with Randall Carlson and, you know, Randall's you know, pretty much untrained, you know, I wouldn't consider that he's considered an archaeologist, but his big thing is like the comet impact mm-hmm. that um, brought on the younger Dryas. And now that's being started to be accepted in a lot of like different fields.
3: It is actually, that's the, that's very refreshing. I think um, pro- probably I would agree with that. I would agree that a lot of this is becoming more acceptable. I think that behind the scenes, what you'll find are a lot of archaeologists and scholars of all sorts that do, you know, take this stuff very seriously, but they don't necessarily come out publicly to say it. Yeah. There are, though, some more concerning trends I've noticed that uh, I have to just say. um, Recently, there has been a push in the academic arena to go on the attack hack for these sorts of ideas, ideas they call pseudo or fringe. Um, And they've done that in different conferences and talked about it. An article that came out um, in, I think, April um, was called Believe Atlantis. These archaeologists want to win you back to science. It sounded, you know, uh, tame enough. But when you actually read through it, it started to discuss how the belief or interest in subjects like Atlantis can be associated with white supremacy and Nazism Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, so, you know, I can understand some of the arguments that are made in that, um, you know, the idea that... when you say something like, well, the aliens must have built the pyramids, therefore the Egyptians were just primitive and had no ability to understand what they were doing. I mean, it can sound dismissive and, you know, assuming, you know, whoever may say it, it could look like white supremacy. Um, But I would just say that that's, that's not on the whole how it is. That's not been my experience at all. And these sorts of ideas have been around for a long time. And the fans of this material are generally not at all thinking this. They're yeah. the people who are interested in, you know, these fairly innocent ideas that we've had around since, I mean, Leonard Nimoy was spouting these ideas and he certainly wasn't a white supremacist, at least I hope not. Well, <laughs> that would have taken a whole new t- you know, yeah. twist on things. But um, yeah, so I think in some ways it is becoming a little more accepted. And then in other ways, I think that there's a push to, you know, tamp it down. And I th- I
1: think it has to do with a I think there's an outside political influence that's really pushing it, and uh, well we're kind of generalists so we're into the UFO stuff and all this other mm-hmm. all these other subjects that are all kind of collectively under the gun for the same reason, and it's like they're in the archaeology they're equating anyone with alternative ideas with the worst of the antiquarians it seems like it's like they're just using the the extremes of the British-Israelism and in, mm-hmm. in the you know 19th century, and they're just painting everyone.
2: Oh yeah, they're just like these guys. And well, one of the one of the biggest ones right that comes under fire a lot is the Salutrian hypothesis. Right, right. And this this which this whole idea that there could have been possibly you know, thousands of years ago um, from Europe when the sea level was much lower that people could have walked over or maybe you know. Island hopped over to the new world from Europe, but somehow that has become, that's, that's been one that's been really cited as saying like, well, that's like a white supremacist thing. And that's mm-hmm. one very like kind of verboten by the establishment.
3: Yeah, no, that, that has been. And I think uh, so many, so many things that whatever goes against the whole out of Africa theory is mm-hmm. starting to be, you know, framed in that context. And, um, you know, I would say that that's that's too bad that's happening. But in another way, it's sort of I don't think it's making a huge impact I think the people that are open-minded and want to know the truth and want to look into these ideas um, They are able to do so and they are and, and and I see that a lot in, you know Just the internet you see people who are looking into this now the problem is that There can be so much disinformation now and you know, obviously there's this whole fake news and this thing Um and so it's it's understandable when you have the academics who are saying, oh you know it's like a free-for-all anything goes and you know but the the problem I think is something that they have made they have done because they have created a vacuum of information. Mm-hmm. This is another problem I saw um, you know on the, the the magazine the um, Chronicle of Higher Education came out with an article saying that, Public or no, it said historians are not public utilities. I think the title was, Hmm. and it was this whole discussion about how um, you know professional historians and academics in general uh, they are they should be treated like lawyers or you know doctors or somebody who whose consultation should be worth you know money. And so for somebody to have a question about history and maybe want to ask a question, uh, their advice was do not answer the question. And I thought, well, that is absolutely something I have never heard and I couldn't even fathom because as a historian, I think I want to talk about this. This is what I live for. And if somebody's going to ask me, not only do I want to talk about it, but I feel like I have a sense of responsibility to answer the questions. And and isn't this what I did? This is what I went to school for. So uh, it doesn't even make sense to me why this would be, you know, kind of encouraged to not speak to the public. Some of the reasons they cited were, um, were that. The public will try to get get gotcha moments. So they'll try to contact you with questions and loop you into saying something that you may regret. Uh, They they mostly fear Twitter and that sort of thing. Uh, But again, Mm. the answer isn't to hide from the public. How much more elitist can you get? Like, you know, climb up in the ivory tower and lock the doors and never come out. It's only making matters worse.
1: That's true, because at the same time, everything's being so democratized and people are getting all this alternative information that it's probably more important than ever for, uh, you know, actually learned people to be out there providing information to the public.
3: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
2: Let's get into the um, title of the book. Why did you title this Evil Archaeology?
3: Well... The title, um, I think it came about because I was looking into the idea of evil. Every time I would sort of run some of the ideas by people um, or I would talk about some of the sites I was entertaining, exploring uh, for, for the book, that was the word that came about most often. I would tell people about a site that had to do with, you know, cannibalism or whatever. And the first thing is, oh, that's just evil, evil, evil. And so the word kept coming you know, out all over the place. And I started thinking about this idea, well, what is evil? And, you know, we know it when we see it. So it's, and it's something that's cross-cultural. It's, you know, clearly um, a universal, human universal, some idea that there is good and there's bad and there's varying extremes of that. And so, uh, you know, I thought, well, I think this whole thing when it comes down to it is going to have to address Evil, the concept, and and because it's an immaterial thing, it's hard to really put a finger on what it is. It's certainly intangible, um, and a lot of the things that I discuss are actually tangible, and so to maybe bridge that gap between the tangible and the intangible, um, that's sort of why I went in that direction. Um, you know, so and the idea of archaeology too. Uh, what I did in the book is, yes, I do look at archaeological sites and artifacts, but I also, um, you know offer a lot of history and discussion and um in some ways um firsthand accounts ethnologies and even um what's called a phenomenology and so it seems sort of out of place maybe to talk about psychology or you know some of the things that I approach in the book and the way that I do um but it's it, I followed a branch of what's called cognitive archaeology to look at some of these things and so I looked at it through the lens of not only just material archaeology but cognitive archaeology as well and so that's that's kind of why I included so many different things and even prehistoric accounts that um, are made up by me, but made up using actual um, facts. And so just to paint a narrative.
2: Can you define that idea of cognitive archaeology, what that means?
3: Yeah. Um, cognitive archaeology, um, it is a sort of um, – you know, when you see archaeology, or if you just think of the word archaeology, what most people kind of think about is what's seen in popular culture, which is the digging part. Then that part is the full excavation. Um, but archaeology is is a lot more than that. And that, that full excavation is really just one part of a much bigger process. And so the cognitive archaeology is more or less an analysis of the discoveries. Um, and it's a, it's a type of analysis that is... Um, Yes, there's. It's scientific, but it's it follows more of the softer science approach, a social science aspect of it, um, and so, you know, that's that's a, something that I think is really important to uh, point out is that archaeology, although it uses scientific tools and methodology, um, it is still a qualitative science. It's a social science. And some people may use the word, you know, or the phrase soft science in a pejorative way, um, you know, because there's that whole debate between, well, this isn't fact or there's, you know, the qualitative approach where you have to really interpret your findings as opposed to, say, date them or, you know, do something with mathematics, like a quantitative method, a lot of people argue that, well, that's just, you know, inaccurate, or it's a lot of uh, inferences on the person's part, you know, but, and while that's true, you know, qualitative methods are really subjective. Um, It's a true part about looking at history. And archaeology is, of course, a way to look at history. And we can't get in a time machine actually be there firsthand to get those, uh, you know, the facts, so we're dealing with a lot of gaps in the database. And so with archaeology, what we do is we find historical data points that are actually um, tangible, quantified, um, and then We still have to fill in the the gaps with these qualitative ways. So it's the meanings, concepts, definitions, um, symbols, and and sort of description of things that is generally termed as cognitive archaeology. So it's that part of the archaeological analysis that goes beyond just simply sizing and dating and, and cataloging the artifacts themselves. Okay. I hope that I hope that makes sense.
2: That does make sense. And okay. in that chapter about cognitive archaeology, um you bring forward an interesting concept. Um from Julian Jaynes. Yes. And this is the um uh, the bicameral mind.
3: Yes, I, I, I love Julian Jaynes. I he is so fascinating. He is, I think, one of the um least discussed, um underrepresented Um, thinkers of our time. Uh, He was very interesting and a little eccentric. Um, He was a psychology professor at Princeton. um, And he published this very controversial at the time theory about the emergence of the human mind. And so what he did was he thought that, well, and let me just say this, as a psychologist, um, he was sort of drifting out of his lane by doing this. And I think that's, you know, part of the problem. Although the book did, uh, the book is called uh, The breakdown of the bicameral mind. Um, And so it's, a lot of people did say it was a great book, but more people just sort of dismissed it because of the idea that he was doing that interdisciplinary research as opposed to just a purely psychological approach. And so what he did, he took um, his knowledge of psychology, um, I think he had a little Jungian aspect to it, um, but he, he looked back at literature from the past and decided that Um, until probably about a few thousand years or so ago, human beings had no concept of self. And so they had no subjective consciousness at all. And that's what he called the bicameral mind. And it's based on the idea that the brain is divided into a God side and a human side. And that this side, these sides are, you know, bridged between each other with the, by the corpus callosum, um, a important structure in the brain, of course. Um, but the human side, uh, that he figured was there, um, Sort of heard voices, and experienced them, uh, and said that they came from gods. Mm. And so it, it's it's really interesting it, this idea that there was a point where basically our brain was divided, and that through some through some means, and he doesn't necessarily um, you know deduce what that is. There have been theories that it has to do with um, f- cooking food, uh, maybe the idea that some these early people got a hold of a psychedelics and it just started changing the you know the Is way of their the, brain.
2: The stoned ape theory. Yeah,
3: the it's Kenna? a little bit of yeah. a little bit of that. Um, that's at least some of the the things that people have maybe used to describe what's usually called the big brain bang. This and so it's it's a little fuzzy in, in Jane's. He doesn't necessarily go into the whys of it. He just goes into the Uh, the evidence that you may be able to find for this unknown and misunderstood process of consciousness or the development of consciousness. And he does that through looking at uh, the Greek epic, the Iliad. To illustrate this, he says the story was written um, in a period where the bicameral mind was in decline, but still kind of operational. And so he argued that the humans hear the voices of the gods in times of stress in that story, similar to how he experienced the, uh, accounts of schizophrenics and people who would hear voices telling them what to do under duress. And so, you know, it's just a fascinating look. And there's a lot of holes in it. It it is an older theory. This came out in the 70s. Um, But it's still something that I think is worth looking into. This idea that, you know, humans started hearing their own inner dialogue and they started to obey it because the inner voice may have maybe just been an audible memory. Um, Maybe they didn't know. It could have been a spirit. But somehow, some way... Uh, you know people started having a consciousness and it, you know perhaps that is why we have an idea of spirits or entities that are aside from ourselves and maybe this is why these possessions or you know any of these experiences um, exist this idea that well the voices i'm hearing they're they're not of me they're of they're of an entity that's outside and and usually people who are hearing those sorts of things may act um, erratically so if you have epilepsy or you know, maybe schizophrenia or something, you may not act in a way that would be deemed stable for obvious reasons. So, um, you know, so I I just thought it was an interesting thing to include this idea that um, we really don't know what's going on in our heads. You know, consciousness is so strange. And, uh, you know, so I just, I kind of wanted to just introduce the audience and the readers to Julian James for that. Um, Great, great, great thinker. Um, Like I said, some of the ideas are a little outdated. uh, Some of them are, but... I think he's one of those envelope pushers that, you know, just went out on a limb and said, I'm going to put this out here and and see what gives. And I think being bold like that can, you know, result in even accidental good information, if nothing else.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting theory. And I'm curious as to why he what his justification was for thinking that the voices stopped. Like what possibly happened to cause that? Did he go into that at all? Did it have anything yeah. to do with like the Bronze Age collapse maybe?
3: Yeah, yeah, actually, he um, he did he did discuss that. He, he believed that the um, there was the the Bronze Bronze Age collapse as you put it this uh, time where we can see in the historical record and archaeological record that cultures and governments just completely collapsed. Um, and so it, it really does come down to the level of stress. And so I think it has to do with that. I think that's his whole point is to say, well, you know, there are certain levels of acceptable environmental stresses that uh, started these these hiccups in the brain where people would hear voices or you know these things would occur. And uh, but then during a time of great collapse, it was just too much for people overall. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and and it just so happened he didn't really pull that out of his, you know, where uh, he he associated these events with the text of the time. And so he found that there was evidence for, um, you know, this sort of mental breakdown or whole cultural mental breakdown um, in the text that show struggles of, of men and, you know, the gods that no longer instruct them what to do. There's a lot of stories about how the gods just left them behind. And yeah. uh, you see, you see this a lot in, in a lot of different texts of that time. Uh, I include in the book, the, uh, the, the, the poem from babylon that that is it was 1230 bce i believe um it had multiple references to gods that left man it said you know my god has forsaken me and disappeared something that you hear echoed through a lot of different religions um but it comes from that original source the idea that the god has forsaken that person um and then you know it just goes on to say that Uh, God is gone. I called to my God, but he didn't show his face. And it's just the lamenting of where is God? And, um, you know, if you could imagine living in that sort of time period where everything around you is a catastrophe, Um, yeah, it may lead to a lot of people having these sorts of mental breakdowns. And, uh, you know, there's no great scientific proof for this. You know, so again, it's one of these things where you got to go out on a limb and say, well, this did happen according to the archaeological evidence, um, according to the historical evidence with the text, you know, we see this as well. Um, And then here we have James, who is a, you know, psychologist who looked at it in sort of a a neurostructural way as well and said, well, we can actually see these changes here, um, and so it it kind of coincides. So it's it's very intriguing. Um, again, that's why there's so many holes in it. It's not a really well developed theory uh, because a lot of people just looked at it as, "Wow, this is amazing. This is huge. This is way too much. Let's just leave it here and walk away and go in a different direction," you know. Hmm. Um, so,
2: yeah, but it's yeah. an interesting idea. I think that's. I think so. Yeah, um, let's go into Mesopotamian demons so got some interesting stuff in this book and uh the, you talk a lot about uh pazuzu yes the um which is there's some interesting stuff with pazuzu not uh, he's the demon that is uh talked about in the exorcist yes i don't know if in the book i, don't, I can't remember if in the book he was actually mentioned by name i'm
3: pretty and they sure they never mentioned was. him
2: in the movie but they did show the, the famous statue at the beginning of the of the film. Yeah.
3: And,
2: and if you've ever been to, like, I've been to, like, New York, the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and mm-hmm. the, like, the Sumerian, like, the near, ancient Near Eastern section, mm-hmm. and there, there's, like, all kinds of amulets of Pazuzu. So he was pretty well known in his time.
3: He was. He was very well known, very popular. He was popular because he was used as a, as a mode of protection. Yeah. Um, he, you know, so there was uh, this whole idea of, Basically entities, otherworldly entities. We only now call them demons because of the way that we've, you know, contextualized them in modernity. But at the time, these were entities that were both capable of bad and good. Um, they were just sort of uh, powerful. And so as a result, yes, Pazuzu was, you know, pretty bad, could do a lot of terrible things, including possess you. But he could also save your baby in the sense that, You know, if you had a, uh, you know, if you were a woman and you were pregnant or you had a newborn, uh, of course, sudden infant death and and miscarriage was very common. Uh, And so they blamed that on the demon Lamashtu, who was the wife of Pazuzu. Mm. According to the legend, she was barren and couldn't have children. So she was very jealous and she would come in and want to steal the babies. And the only way you could get rid of her uh, or deter her in any way was to have a Pazuzu amulet or plaque, something to summon Pazuzu, her husband, so that he could literally whip her into submission. And there's a lot of depictions of that where he's whipping her away from a uh, sleeping baby. And so it was a very common, maybe good luck charm, if you will, to have Pazuzu. And which is very interesting because here we have this really awful, scary demon that we now associate with things like the exorcist. And to think that at one point... It was a, probably given baby showers, that sort of thing. So,
2: <laughs> Yeah, he was a pretty normal facet of life for those people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and y- you do mention uh, there was a pazuzi worship going on in the modern world. This one guy that was in North Carolina, I think.
3: Yes. And that, that was something that, you know, I I dare say inspired me, um, but it it did, it did make me sort of take notice, um, you know, with all this talk of Mesopotamian demons are so old, you know, so ancient and yet they had a, a cultural relevancy and that they, you know, are depicted in in movies like The Exorcist and even The Omen. Um, And so you have this kind of association with uh, modern Christianity. And I found that to be fascinating, but I didn't realize how modern. And uh, yeah, I I discuss in the book um, the case of Pazuzu, uh, who was actually a man named John Lawson, who had legally changed his name to Pazuzu.
2: I think it was like uh, Pazuzu was in, or something like that. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes. And so he changed his name legally because he wanted to honor the demon Pazuzu. Hmm. And he, he was just an average guy growing up in suburbs. And, uh, you know, he struggled with mental health issues, clearly. And he would he yeah. ended up living with his mother, um, you know, and his, his mother moved away but let him have the house. And so here he's in his mom's house, and then he has a girlfriend. He starts to get hooked up with a bunch of disenfranchised people, and he starts m- practicing what he believed to be a Sumerian religion that involved monthly blood sacrifices. And they started, of course, with a small animal, but then that wasn't enough. And so he worked his way up to the neighbors. And hey. during this. Yeah, so you know, go big or go home. And so he took the he took the neighbors out and he killed them and then butchered them and cannibalized them and then buried him in his mother's yard. And he would do this during the black moon in order to appease the Sumerian demons and to honor Pazuzu, his namesake. And I thought, wow, okay. Well, it didn't it, I, I started looking into this case a little more, and I saw there were pictures and then video taken from inside his house from the uh, sheriff's department in north carolina and it was just absolutely disturbing there were sumerian markings all over the walls the pazuzu and other beings known as the anunnaki were you know painted or pictures posted up um just everything you could imagine from sumerian all the way up to just the typical um, pentagrams and those sorts of things and uh there was uh, the kitchen they they just it was awful i mean it's just I I describe it in great detail in the book. Um, But yeah, it it was just filthy garbage everywhere. It looked like an episode of Hoarders, but worse because, you know, you knew what happened there. Um, But then he, you know, he ended up going to prison. Well, he went to jail um, and he was being charged with murder. And he had a girlfriend and a female friend that were also then, um, you know, in the middle of being charged with other, um, you know, charges. But it wasn't long after he was uh, detained that, he was found dead in his cell yeah. and so it was a little weird because um, the autopsy report showed that he had bled out from a cut on his, the inside of his arm. Um, It looked as though to them that he was trying to cut his arm off. Um, The report said that uh, he had likely bled out of that brachial artery um, but that he also had really deep scratches all over himself from his chest to his arm and even his head and he had multiple rib fractures. Still, though, the autopsy couldn't really see how he died. How did he get the wound that ultimately killed him? Um, And so the, the report really couldn't determine if it was suicide. Um, but they did note that he had begged his psychiatrist to let him perform this so-called black moon ritual, um, because he was afraid that if he didn't, the demon Pazuzu would come and kill him. Mm. And his mother had warned the police that, you know, hey, this is serious. I don't know. You got to take him seriously. If he can't do this, he may kill himself or something could have happened. And sure enough, he died and he never was able to face those charges. But, um, yeah, so it was a little <laughs> weird to say the least.
2: There's a couple of ways you could interpret that. Whether he mm-hmm. just like self-inflicted that on himself, or the demon Pazuzu really did come and get him.
3: Right, and he was alone in that cell too. And yeah. so it was after it was um, after the midnight blood black moon, rather. Um, it was three in the morning where they found him. So it was the timing was interesting as well. What year did that happen in? I believe 2014. Okay. It was, and, yeah 2014. Yeah. Do
1: they know what initially got him interested in the Sumerian mythology, and then discovering these? You know, ha- ha- his his inspiration for the system that he created. Right. No,
3: I, they, it's sort of a mystery. I'm, you know, his it's probably he- he-
1: heavy metal and Zechariah Sissy right. books.
3: Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Too much. We're staying up late watching Ancient Aliens and smoking.
2: Yeah, and and the Exorcist probably. <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> all three like or four right. of the exorcist movies yeah
3: something i mean it was really terrible but that that was something that you know i thought of is that yeah i clearly he did this he was terrible you know he was mentally ill etc but i couldn't help but think about the idea of being inspired and that idea of of the inspiration to do this you know inspired by pazuzu and it took me to the Latin for inspi- you know, inspiration, the inspirare, which mm-hmm. is to breathe or blow into. And it was specifically used to describe a supernatural being's breath that imparted an idea to somebody. And so I started thinking about the ideas of possession and the exorcist and these sorts of things and how, you know, they, they have a clear look to them, something we all expect. But, um, you know, and you can say, well, possession isn't real and I don't believe in possession. But if you really think about what possession is, supposedly, it's an evil spiritual entity that inhabits a a willing person and encourages them to do evil things in the name of the demon. And so I thought, well, in a roundabout way, that's being inspired. And so, yeah, it's like splitting hairs maybe with semantics, but that it it just sort of, you know, led me to question a little more deeply uh, the roots of our understandings of what it means to be possessed or overcome by uh, some evil entity, and then actually how that manifests in the real world. Because, you know, I'm often asked, well, you wrote this book, so are demons real? And all I can say is, you know, I've not seen any, um, you know, artifacts or ecofacts or anything, no bodies, nothing to establish that, yes, demons are physically, tangibly, biologically real. But I think of, well, what does it mean to be real? you know the idea of, of something having real world consequences if they can if it can manifest into the real world i mean to me that's real and so it may the demons may not be physical they may not actually exist but man you know how do we account for this very common human experience that we've had in all cross culturally cross religions it just doesn't matter it's something we all have experienced that you know there's this idea of a, a demonic entity. It comes into a person, and it can manifest evil, evil acts, and it actually has tangible, real-world effects. And so, you know, to me, if if I were the mother of one of the victims of this Pazuzu Algarad, uh, I would I would think it was very real. And so, you oh, know, yeah,
2: absolutely.
3: So I think it's that again with the idea of phenomenology, the lived experience, the idea of what is real. And so it can get a little, you know, philosophical and, and you know, theological even. But, um, you know, that's sort of where I left it. I thought, well, I can't say definitively that these demons are not real. <laughs> you know, I, um, I can say they may not take the appearance that we all, you know, may think that they do, or, or a lot of people think they do, thanks to media and television and that sort of thing. Well, and with the exception of like a certain
1: charismatic christian traditions in america we we don't have as many uh outlets for people to kind of get outside of themselves which has kind of always been a a human need and you find it all around the world uh you know in religious observances people getting into trance states people getting into a kind of you know catching the holy spirit or, or getting possessed yeah. in a positive way but we don't mm-hmm. we don't have as much as that so it seems like the only real thing that that people are even aware of is like this demonic possession you know maybe some of these people have never really had the chance to kind of get outside of themselves in their whole life and it kind of you know there's maybe some things that are kind of brewing that uh that take them over pretty much even if it's just psychological
2: yeah right the whole idea of like you know satanism or just being this mirror image of christianity (laughs) You know mm-hmm. where we the, it essentially borrows from Christianity.
3: Yeah, and it it turns everything sort of upside down and on its head. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh,
2: one of the things I found interesting about Pazuzu, and I just recently thought of this and kind of kind of discovered it, was you know the Pazuzu is normally depicted with one arm down, one arm up, and that's Uh-oh. the. That's the, that's the, as above, so below, and now, you know, Baphomet is also depicted in that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just uh, yeah, an interesting aside, I guess.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You see that. And you also see it in, um, depicted in Byzantine art, angels doing the same thing. Yeah. And so that, that's something interesting, interesting. as well. Huh. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's definitely, you know, used in, in demonic, um, you know, imagery, But it's also used in Christian imagery, especially, you know, a lot older Christian imagery. Um, So I think because of that, I think when you look, again, you know, they say all roads lead to Rome, but I think in a lot of ways, all roads lead to Mesopotamia. And we can always see that these things are, you know, very connected. You see the Anunnaki or, you know, a lot of these Sumerian deities, um, they have that similar stance and they weren't necessarily considered evil, although they weren't necessarily considered good either. Uh, But it, it was a little more complicated, but... What you have are these these same symbols that have just changed over time but they're still here and then, that to me is fascinating.
2: That good nor evil aspect I think also continues over to the Islamic concept of the jinn where they can yes. be either they can be either are
3: yes yeah yeah and, and that's 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 another um, fascinating area too that people are, are actually looking into um, whether or not jinn are physically real. You know, then part of my search for, you know, whether or not there could be uh, evil entities, um, you know, looking at them from a scientific perspective, uh, I found that there are actually people who are doing research into. Uh, Looking for jinn in a a, like a germ theory sort of way. They're actual scientists in Morocco that um, Are they've made up sort of a molecular explanation for demons and they're they're using really high-tech Materials and and methods to investigate that idea Um, And so they're trying to open it up to something beyond spiritual and also beyond mental illness to Confirm the existence of evil entities Um, They've done this uh, by using you know, uh, very advanced microscopes, and then also mathematic formulas that they believe um, can be used to track accurately track the behavior and you know motion of the demons. And so uh, it's it's a little it's it's kind of wacky in a way, <laughs> but it's also really interesting nonetheless mm. to think that there are people, there are paid professionals out there doing this sort of work, and it's just as an interesting insight into how. You know, cultural differences can make it so that uh, you know we entertain different ideas. Maybe they're they seemed more acceptable than than others because, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine a lot of uh, universities in America actually funding and doing these sorts right, of things. Yeah. Although you never know, they're doing weird things in secret. So <laughs> maybe maybe there's an island somewhere, like <laughs> That's the island true. of Dr. Moreau, where they're doing this sort of thing. But yeah.
2: what about the Mesopotamian toilet, Neiman?
3: Oh, that one. That's one of my favorites. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the toilet demon, it it, it is what it is. It is exactly how it it sounds. And so this was a demon that um, comes from the Babylonian Talmud. It warned against um, this toilet demon. Quite literally, that's what it was. It was the Shed Bet Hakis, which stood for the toilet demon. And so... um, this was a demon that's that, supposed to be a safe space, man. You know? Yeah, There are no such things <laughs> as safe spaces. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't care what they try to tell you, <laughs> but the, um, no, it, it's really interesting because this was a whole host of, of demons that were known to lurk in dark places and private places. And so it was this whole sort of brand of demon. And, um, this one specific one was the toilet demon. And so the, the, The thing you had to worry about with the toilet demon was that um, if you went to the toilet, um, you should not have sexual intercourse right afterwards. If you did and you had babies as a result, they would be epileptic. And in some cases, that would mean they were demonic. And, that makes
2: sense. That makes right, sense. Yeah. right, yeah.
3: of course. So if, if you, um, and so that's something today, they kind of conflated epilepsy with, with possession as well. So, of course, if you, right. you know, mm-hmm. have that. Yeah, so, but um, you see that a lot—that epilepsy is is associated with these demonic entities. But um, yeah, and so what you needed to do to, uh, you know, protect yourself is wear an amulet or do something like that, um, you know. But you see this demon, uh, in in a lot of different records. It it stood it it stayed around for a long time, and it basically. Uh, was a sort of a a weird hybrid lion goat being it was supposedly creepy I've not been able to locate a good picture of it or any kind of amulet or whatnot so I'm still looking and if anyone knows of any resources for that I'd I'd love to see what the toilet demon looked like because in my mind I'm imagining it like the um, thing from that movie from the 80s that was like Oh, I forget what that movie was. But there was a, I don't know, like a garbage pail kit or something. But <laughs> no, it was like a um, lion or a goat being and basically lived in the toilet. Mm. And what would happen is, you know, you go to the bathroom, you sit down and you would have like a stroke or epileptic fit or you'd fall suddenly. And um, it was actually even discussed in medical textbooks um, because it was important. Because if you found a patient, um, you know, on their left side, having this stroke or or fit or something then you knew that oh wait this was the toilet demon and so clearly it's the toilet demon guys well that's the only thing it could have been so absolutely and (laughs) so they also they so the thing too was and i think if you think about it now a little more closely there are a lot of people that you know uh die on the toilet for different medical reasons you know that's what happened to elvis Right, and he yeah. was, well. I mean, clearly he was killed by the toilet demon. I mean, I don't think that's in dispute yeah. at this point. If you point. believe he died,
2: <laughs> that's right. Right,
3: yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I toilet think demon was a
2: Beatles it. fan. That's what it was. <laughs>
3: right, so he, yeah. So that's that's the thing is, you know, there there is a um, anatomical reason for that. There's a artery, you know, in, in down there that you know can have problems under stress, you can have heart attacks, you know, not meaning to scare anybody or get into details. But, you know, if you're unhealthy or you're having problems and you might be a little constipated, you can actually pass out or even die or stroke out on the toilet. Um, So it it, I think maybe that that was one of their explanations for what was going on. Um, But again, they really had this down to what they believed was a science. They said, you know, if he if he fell off the toilet and he was on his right side, um, it was a stroke inflicted by a lurker and that was the 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 whole main category of these types of demons that would be either in toilets or back alleys or sometimes you know really gross pits anywhere that was dark and right. dirty. Well, I mean, um, maybe
1: that's just from like a some kind of hygiene taboo.
3: Oh, I, yeah, I'm sure that that played a lot into it. I mean, because that was so important too. You know, it it could be either either or all or everything, but certainly you see that with the sexual intercourse aspect. Yeah. Um, it was yeah, don't 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 go doing that after you've gone to the toilet. And when they, you know, the toilet as a number two. And so they, that yeah. was a very hygiene oriented rule there that they were trying to enforce with that.
1: Or, you know, you just tell your kids, did you wash your hands? You don't want the toilet demon to get you. I think that's
3: how we should do it. You know, elf on a shelf. I think we should have like, you know, toilet demon <laughs> in the sink or something and just tell your kids, Hey, listen,
2: it's like lion know. slash goat creature. that like, lives
3: apps. in your toilet. <laughs> Yeah, it's a new way to potty train. It'd be very effective. Or, or
1: some kind of like Freudian, uh, <laughs> some, some, some weird Freudian fixation. Yeah, I'm
2: sure there's a like, lot yeah. there. Yeah, that's, there's, yeah, that's there's pretty so deep. much to
3: unpack. <laughs> yeah.
2: Let, let's, let's talk about something, even. Let's talk about a, a lighter subject um, ritual human sacrifice.
3: Oh, right. Okay, that's so much lighter.
2: So this is one that I've really been curious about for a long time. And I've heard different. Discussions about this and different viewpoints about it. And the whole idea of what the Phoenicians and the, by extension, the Carthaginians later did with Molech and this whole idea of passing through the fire. And I've heard different things because they say that the Romans really, since they won the wars, that they really wanted to kind of demonize the Carthaginians and say so that they just sacrificed their children left to right, left and right. But I've also heard that it was real too. So,
3: yeah, that is that is a really um, contentious subject because some of the best information that we have on that has been from the Romans, and so um, you know, you that's tough because it's almost like a personal call. Like, do you believe the Romans? Do you not believe the Romans? Uh, there's reason to believe, but then again, clearly they were biased. So it's it's just really hard to sift that one through. But, um, you know, you, you do have different sort of accounts of that that are not necessarily from, um, you know, the Romans. So um, I would say that when you look at the archaeological record, that's where you can maybe find some of the better information. Um, although the Roman information is fantastic in its detail, it still is that whole bias aspect of it. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to really tell if it's true or not, but archaeologists have in fact discovered um, cremated remains of children during excavations um, in Carthage. And so at this point, given all the research that is there, um, it, I think it would be safe to say that this did happen. To what extent? I mean, that is, that's that's that might be... The, I think it's just nitpicking at this point. Like We'd need to really get down and say, okay, well, were the Romans exaggerating? I think if anything they were exaggerating if, if exaggeration, you know, at all. But what you're finding now is a lot more actual tangible, you know, artifacts that suggest that they had done this. And so, um, you know, there have been remains found of of, uh, children that had been burned. um, And the researchers, when they looked at the remains, they determined that the children had been born prematurely or were uh, gathered, burned and sacrificed to the gods. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's, it's coming to light. I think with more research, we're sadly going to find a lot more information that shows that, yes, this this was actually happening. Um, but in Carthage, they they did believe in shared practices of the Canaanites and Phoenicians. Um, and so since we have a lot of the data on Carthage, we can do a lot of just cross-referencing and, you know, put the pieces together. And while it's not, the best absolute proof to say X marks the spot and, and here's what happened. Um, yet, there's a lot of uh, ways that you can look and, and determine, yes, they were they were doing it. Because the Phoenicians, you know, we know they continued to do this human sacrifice until uh, about the 5th century uh, BCE. And so, I mean, but there's been more than one excavation to show that the Canaanite children specifically were being burned on an altar um, and they were being burned in large amounts. And these children were between um, three and 12 months. And so this is kind of important. And, and this is another thing when you look in the Bible itself, if you look at Deuteronomy, they mentioned specifically how Canaanites used to burn their children alive as a sacrifice. Um, and they would have been about that age that this happened. And so, you know, um, it, it's 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 difficult because yes, the Bible does mention a lot of different things. And then you can say, well, the Bible, it's the bio. know, a lot of people don't want to look at that as a historical source. However, it is a historical source. Um, Whether or not someone believes in the religion or the dogma that came out of it, it is still a historical document. And so when you use that and look at the cross cultural references and look at the archeological excavations in the actual sites that are bearing out these facts, um, I would I would safely say that yes this did happen. I don't think it's really in dispute. I think there's reason that it's still in debate. Um and so someone could, you know, write a whole thesis on it and they probably are as we speak. But to say that it didn't happen at all and to turn a blind eye to that part of human history and say, "Oh no, they didn't, you know, burn children and they didn't burn it to Moloch and this didn't happen." That's just not true. It's mm-hmm. just simply not true. They did it.
2: Yeah, I've heard the one the kind of I guess the apologist idea that they would it was like a symbolic thing that they would make them pass through like this ring of fire and then i've heard that it actually did mm-hmm. that it actually did happen and the canaanites we, we know you know from the bible like you said they they participated in it and they also you know they gave rise to the phoenicians and then the phoenicians Carthage, which was a phoenician mm-hmm. colony mm-hmm. so this this whole ritual practice um continued i suppose what was the Purpose of this? Does, does it ever is well, it ever spoken about? I don't know, like?
3: I don't know that it's a, a a very clear purpose, yeah. um, other than things like um, what generally happens. So the the idea of uh, prosperity happening, um, yeah. fertility, the the typical things you that would come to mind, the wicker man um, idea. Yeah, yeah, basically, exactly that. Um, um, but you know, the Old Testament actually. Um, speaks of this and saying specifically that thou shalt not let any, let any of thy seed um, pass through the fire to Moloch, mm-hmm. um, right? And so that, thy seed being your own child, so this was a problem, and you know it goes on from there. But it it was definitely something that the the religious people who were not necessarily practicing uh, pagans that way they they were concerned about this they were seeing that they were human beings that would have their children and go off to sacrifice them in these just awful ways and so um yeah i think we have a, enough evidence to suggest that this was actually going on but as you said it, it's the the reasons yeah definitely wicker man oriented things like um you know prosperity i think is probably the, the number one idea of it but it was a really brutal brutal thing um as you can imagine yeah um, you know, and so, I mean, it, it's depicted, this, this figure, um, it's very well cited in multiple sources that there's um, this idol of Moloch being a, a huge brass figure that sits on a throne and it had the body of a man and the head of a, a calf that wore a crown and in its stomach was a furnace. It had a bunch of compartments, and it and, you know, it it received all sorts of different offerings, including children. But but it had to be big enough to um, take all offerings, like ox and calves, and just everything else like that. So, but it's it's really gory. There's a lot of different pictures of it out there online, the, the artist depictions of what it could be. Um, but the the arms would be extended out as if to receive, you know, the offering, and um, you know the child would be place there and the arms were constructed in a way that they could lift up and then the victim would just by gravity roll down into the open mouth of this uh, what ended up being a you know a furnace essentially. Um, and they would be consumed by the fire at that point. And um, you know obviously this was a, a treacherous thing and there's there's accounts of parents who were just crying because they while they voluntarily did this, they they still would cry about this. Um, and the cries of both the parents and the children would um, be masked by instruments playing and drum beats and and different things. and so um, yeah, it, and it's very it, it's it's awful, but it was done. Um, you know, it's something that we've seen done in, in a lot of different cultures.
1: Well, in those cultures that, that practiced human sacrifice and especially like, like Moloch, where there's this idol present, is there an idea that this, the energy of sacrificing these people is embedded into objects or places? And is this maybe like the source of some ideas of the possession of objects
3: I th- that's, you know, I think so. I think that's a really good way to look at it. And I think that, um, yes, the objects had that sort of, of metaphysical power. And I think because um, they would contain the smoke and smoke was always used as, you know, a, a purification. And since it would rise, it would, could reach the gods and the heavens and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, burning of the dead is just something that you see as a very um, spiritual prominent part of sacrifice in general
2: we we do think of the most famous human sacrifice um, material is from the aztecs but uh, there's also you do mention and this is actually in a different section of the book but you mentioned that there was one of the north american tribes that Mm -hmm. was that had a lot to do with um they had a ritual that did with to, to do with human sacrifice
3: Yes, it was the the sacrifice to the morning star. Um, that was something that I also uh, you know found interesting, obviously uh, enough to put in the book, but also uh, surprising in some ways, uh, because you know we don't often think about the the Native Americans as as doing these sorts of things, although the Native Americans are also the Aztecs, and they did that. so but for some reason, we like to maybe um, have the noble savage idea about the um native americans that were on the conti- you know the, the actual states that maybe they were just noble and they didn't do these sorts of things and we also have a tendency to lump all tribes into one kind of mass indian idea of what they all believed and thought and did and it just couldn't be any further from the truth um but so this is something that uh you know the the pawnee did they had a morning star ceremony that uh, needed to happen to a warrior um it was sort of a a, a rite of passage and it oh wow it was really it, it was really sad and, and gory and it's um something that I, I actually had to debate whether or not i wanted to put it in there because of the sensitivity of you know native american um you know spirituality and some of the people's feelings about that but um so um. So the uh, the Great Plains Native, uh, you know, American and Pawnees, um, they had a very amazingly advanced uh, cosmology. Um, they had a, a primary god, um, named Terara. Took I'm sorry, Tirawa. Um, I can't pronounce that very well. Um, I'm you know too Caucasian. I suppose I apologize for that. But um, so if I butcher some of these names verbally, I, I do apologize. <laughs> but um, they're their primary God was a spiritual sort of creator of the universe that ruled over a bunch of lesser gods who were divided into groups of gods of earth and gods of heaven. And, um, you know, the gods of heaven were superior to the gods of earth, as you may expect. And, um, you know, these, these spirits were associated with animals and they actually helped the elite people in native American secret societies, which is another interesting, um, you know, element of this is that they had secret societies Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so these these elite people, they were given a lot of the secrets of the tribe and a lot of different things that they, you know, would carry with them. And so they had access to these heavenly spirits. And, um, you know, the most important, though, of the gods that they had um, – were the morning and evening stars that represented a a male and female dichotomy. And the origin of man was linked to the union of these two stars, which is really, I thought, interesting because it was similar to kind of the um, Western esoteric alchemical marriage idea that came out in the 17th century Rosicrucian, you know, uh, time period If you will, but um, the idea was that Lucifer came down to tempt man with the eating of a forbidden fruit, just like you know, in the in the Bible we see that Um, it matches sort of the story of Prometheus, and uh, you know, who defied the gods to descend to earth, and so we have this very common Lucifer story. Well, um, the Pawnee actually believe that the Morning Star God came down to Earth as well to give man the secret wisdom, and so it's interesting. It is so amazing that Hmm. they referred to them as the same. And so, you know, members of the Secret Society and the Pawnee, they they had these very, very guarded secrets. And this was one of the secrets. Um it was it was known, but the details of it were were secret to the um, you know, ritual elites. But they had this ceremony called the Morning Star Ceremony, um, which was a reenactment of this whole fall fall from grace, this this Lucifer character, um, almost quite literally, who descended to Earth to give man wisdom. Um, and so in the late spring or early summer years, when Mars could be visible, um, the morning star would appear. And it would appear in the dream of a warrior. And that's how you knew you were sort of selected. You'd have this dream. and You wouldn't be able to sleep or rest. You'd start to get obsessed with the idea, almost almost, um, sort of inspired again, if you will. Um, And then just obsessed with the idea of having to find a human sacrifice to appease this morning star entity. And so you see a lot of these similarities then in, in some of the stories with Mesopotamia or just the ideas in general of how people can become obsessed with an idea or inspired. And uh, so what he would do is he would get a group of men together and they would venture into a land that was not their own and and definitely, uh, you know, uncharted territory or even um, ho- hostile lands. And so when they would do this, they would hunt and make offerings to the Morning Star to kind of reassure the entity that um, the time is coming soon and that they were doing these brave deeds and, and that they would soon find their victim. Well, the victim would be a young girl. And when they found this young girl, they would send a message back to the village so that the preparations for the ceremony could start. And the warrior would name this girl, the mighty star of fire and warned others not to touch her. She was completely off limits and sacred. And if anybody touched this, this, this girl, uh, you know, they would pretty much die. Something terrible would happen to them. And so she had to remain pure because she was meant to be the sacrifice to the morning star. And, um, you know, it, back at the village, they would start to get ready. They would make preparations for feasts. They would clear a circle and dig a fireplace and, and make a lodge. And so when the warrior returned um, with the girl, a fire would be lit and smoke would be offered to the gods and songs would be sung and it would they would be sort of hymns to this memorial of the morning and evening star that you know would come together and and you know do this whole deed that they did and you know they would then have the warrior face east and speak directly to the morning star when it came out and the warrior would call upon the entity and say, you know, I'm praying to you as directed. And I've I, we were seeking a sacrifice and I ask you to show yourself. And so it was literally an invocation. And according to the legend, after the invocation, the star would start to shine and even pulsate as though it was responding. And this could be witnessed by others around. And so this would make everybody so much more excited and enthused and more celebrations would just continue. And um, it would go on a long time um, waiting for the morning star to rise all the way, at which point the leader would give one more invocation and then put on war paint. And so after an evening of literal Luciferian in, in you know invocations, this warrior leader would become possessed by this morning star. He would take on the persona of... This entity And four priests who would represent the four cardinal directions um, would then officiate the ceremony and start building a large scaffolding that they would use to hang the sacrificial girl. And so then when the morning star would go higher in the sky, the other warriors would just start to howl and make noises, much like wolves, and then that would indicate that the sacrifice was beginning. The girl would be brought to the fire, undressed, and then purified in smoke, so she'd also have to pass through the fire and pass through the smoke. Mm. Um, and then the right side of her body would be painted red, which was the sacred color of the morning star, and the left side was painted black to symbolize the night. And she would be dressed in a black robe and shoes and given a headdress with uh, 12 uh, black tipped eagle feathers. And they would be arranged like a fan. And in a procession, they would have priests chanting and they would lead her to the scaffolding and then suspend her by the wrist. And, you know, the men around her would be wearing owl skins and. You know, they they would – it was just a huge, huge party, essentially.
2: They were wearing um, owl skins?
3: Yes. They, they would have, like, necklaces of owl skins and um, they, you know, would take a pos- position on each side of the girl, which is also another interesting note given the symbolism uh, of owls with regards to both the Morning Star and human sacrifice in general. Um, but – a lot of time there, there would be times where the girl would try to get away, and uh, sometimes she didn't know what was happening, because when they brought her to the village, she was treated like royalty. You know, she yeah. was kept in her own lodge, she was treated very well, fed very well, no one was allowed to touch or hurt her, and she would Which often is be is
2: similar to some of the things the Inca did, too, you point Absolutely. out. Absolutely,
3: yeah. yes. And so, so, she would be from neighboring tribes, or maybe, you know, she didn't know the language even, so she wouldn't necessarily question this, um, but sometimes, you know, they they would, um, you know, once it was getting pretty apparent. But for the most part, what they would do is they would hang her by the wrist and then they would cut her open and, um, you know, her organs would be caught and they would just throw their hands into the body cavity and viciously paint themselves with her blood. And, you know, they, they like while she's still alive, take her liver and cut it into pieces and eat it and share among the elites and the secret society. And then after they dissected her body, they left her her just dangling. And then at that point it was a free for all of shoot with as many arrows as possible so that she could what Good they were Lord. trying to, yeah what they were trying to do was create a visual they wanted her to be as red as mm. possible and and have as many arrows pointing out of her because that would then resemble the rays of light emanating from the morning star and so it and this went on for a long time, and there's many, many accounts of it and what's worse, and you know it's easy to sometimes think these are so ancient, these are ancient things that happened so long ago, but in fact, the last morning star ceremony took place in eighteen thirty eight yeah huh. <laughs> So again, this is one of those things where, you know, it's it's difficult because we have a you know there's a lot of roadside attractions where you can go and buy, you know, Native American, you know, kitsch and jade and everything's wolves and you know beauty and and it's and it's hard to, you know, tell these stories because it can look a little you know less sensitive, um, but it's it's important to remember that. The Native Americans were not one culture. There were cultures within cultures and warring tribes and, you know, different belief systems, different religions, different ideas. And uh, they weren't all sacrificing humans, but some of them were. And so this happened right in, you know, in America.
2: Yeah. And this was, I, I was, I was looking at Wikipedia actually has an article about this, about the the Morning mm-hmm. Star. And so they, the Indian agents, they said they sought to convince the chiefs to suppress the ritual. Mm-hmm. And that was in, in, in some ways that was because they objected obviously to the human sacrifice, but they yeah. also wanted to say they also wanted to protect the fur trade by producing the intertribal animosity because I'm, because mm-hmm. I'm assuming that these sacrifices, these girls are probably taken in, in raids and, yes. and such. So.
3: Yeah. There's actually, I, I wasn't able to include it in the book um, uh, for various reasons, a publisher and whatnot, but there is a, there is a photo of, the sacrifice that would have been um it's a it's sort of a stage, like a remake like um I guess you could call it at this point experimental archaeology where they kind of rebuilt the scene based on the accounts. and so you can it's a it's a picture that's housed at the field Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's a really good good visual, you know, um, it's a little miniature, kind of like what you'd see in a museum, but Yeah, it's, it's gruesome to say the least, but yeah, we've done all kinds of things as humans.
2: (laughs) No doubt. Um, as we're kind of closing here, um, you kind of got to experience your own, you, not your own exorcism, but you got to experience (laughs) an exorcism.
3: Yes. Yes. That, that was, um. That was quite interesting. Uh, I, I was raised Catholic. Um, I'm no, I'm no longer Catholic, but I was raised Catholic. Um, and for the record, I'm, I'm just Episcopal and I'm Christian. Um, I get that a lot too, like, or oh, what, what are you now, and what's going on? So just for the record, <laughs> I'm Christian. But I was brought up Catholic, and uh, so when when you say exorcism, I'm thinking, you know, spitting out pea soup and heads turning and this sort of thing. And uh, that's not what I encountered. What I encountered was a, a modern day, exorcism from a. Uh, um, you know, a a, a charismatic style um, church, and so I uh, I was in a small town, and it was it was a very small town. The population was less than three hundred people, and uh, you know I had gone, and a friend said, hey, you know, let's let's go to this church, and you know I want to show you. It was a church they were going to, and uh, so I, I agreed to go. And it was this, you know, hot summer night in South Carolina and um, I went to this church and it didn't really look like a church. It looked like a house that had kind of been retrofitted to have a wheelchair ramp and a couple of, um, you know, stained glass windows. Um, And, you know, I I wasn't sure what to expect. They did not say that this was an exorcism. This was a random sort of Wednesday night service kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, we go in and it didn't seem too strange everything seemed familiar enough it was one of the like a, a bible-based kind of church where you know members were just coming in from all over to you know talk about Jesus's miracles and sing, sing songs and there was definitely a, a spirited nature to it though um, speaking in tongues and that sort of thing um, and the preacher was you know very uh, exuberant to say the least and he would preach, he would start to jump up and down and then started, um, you know, running around up and down the pulpit and or from the pulpit, but up and down the pews and running on top of pews. And it was very interesting. And as I'm watching him do this, you know, it's a little distracting, but as I'm watching this, I see that kind of out of nowhere, a woman in a hospital bed is, is rolled in and, um, you know, she's kind of across from the pulpit and, you know, she's just left in front of the church. And from this point, I thought, okay. This is a little weird, but you know maybe it's like a healing thing. So the priest, the preacher, you know, sort of started praying, and he was motionless at this point. And um, everybody in the congregation—it was pretty pretty packed, considering how tiny the town was—but um, everybody, including little kids, started rolling on the floor and speaking in tongues. And the woman in the hospital bed, she seemed to just be sleeping, and she looked kind of sick and haggard and. You know, and she wasn't necessarily elderly, but she kind of just looked like she had had, you know, a hard time. And so one by one, after people were, you know, rolling around and speaking in tongues, they got up and gathered around the bed. And at this point, you know, the friend that took me there said, you know, do, do you have anything to confess? And then that's when they informed me that it was going to be an exorcism. And I was like wait, what? What do you mean? Why would I have to confess anything? You know, I i wasn't really sure, but I declined and didn't really, you know, want to get involved. I was just kind of, I guess, enjoying for the most part watching. And so I was really skeptical. Uh, so I did go up there and I wanted to get a closer look. And, um, you know, everyone was just up there surrounding the woman in the hospital bed and the preacher puts his hands over the woman. And then she starts to speak in tongues, but, um, she starts to then moan and writhe and, and, um, it was really odd. It, it did sort of look like something from a movie at this point, where she's just almost breaking her back and and making these guttural growling sounds. And then at this point, the same door where she had been wheeled in came four goats, and that's what? when everything that's when everything was like definite record skipping for me. It's a party. I was, Right. Well, it's not a party till the goats show up. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. And so they started, you know, and they weren't trained to goats. I don't think they knew what they were. I felt like they maybe knew less than I did at this point because they were just walking aimlessly all around the church. And then I'm focusing on the goats because I'm like, why are there goats here? And then the hospital bed starts shaking. And so I look over there. And so the woman in the bed, her bed is shaking. She's screaming. and, And it's more of a shrieking, crazy sound. And she, her face is so red. I thought she was gonna have a stroke. And you know, then that's when she gets more of the guttural growling, and then just shrieking and growling. And it, at some point, sounds like she's doing both at the same time. And then she starts forming a word. And the preacher asks, "You know, demon, what is your name?" And she starts saying aloo, Alu," and and just I can't do it justice because it was just growling and craziness. And so this happened. This took about an hour and it, people were starting to get tired and kids were falling asleep and but the preacher just never left her side and she just kept going and kept going and then out of nowhere she just sits up and grabs the preacher and I'm thinking hold on now but then she just hugs him and she You know, pulls away. And then you can see she looks like she's been through something. And there was this new clarity in her eye that just wasn't there before. And at which point there was some silence. And then everyone starts clapping and cheering. And still the goats are just walking around, just, you know, going everywhere and doing whatever they do. And then the woman gets up out of the bed and uh, some people help her walk over to a meeting room that was adjacent to the main area. And, um, you know, I also followed to see what was going on, what was next. And uh, in that meeting room was Punch and Cookies. And that was that. (laughs) And so there was a step-in bathtub that they were using for baptisms. And the preacher, you know, took the woman into the bathtub and gave her a baptism. And they had basically what I describe as an after party, where that was another at least hour. And, you know, cause the whole event was about four hours and oh, still go- goats are walking around. I know it was really uh, something. And I thought this uh, is commitment here. And afterwards it was just really different because it's literal punch and cookie time. And the woman was just, she was lucid and normal as can be. She looked worse for wear, but she seemed to be fine. And so it was really strange. And, you know, I, I, I had attended this whole thing before I had gone to school to study anthropology. And so I, I wasn't doing a proper field investigation as I wish I would have or could have been doing. Um, so I wasn't really as equipped to, you know, study this as I, I, I would have been otherwise. And so, um, I did, didn't ask until the car ride back to my hotel. Um, what happened to the goats? Why were the goats there and what was going on? And so, you know, they tell me, well, The goats were there to be literal scapegoats Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and that the, you know, the goats, I I said, well, what's going to happen to the goats? And then it was explained to me that the the goats would then be um, slaughtered as a sacrifice so that the demons would be gone, Um, but not to worry because the meat would be used in the food pantry or they'd have it at a potluck or given to, you know, poor church members. And I was like, oh, well, and then someone brought that, brought it up to me later. (laughs) Wouldn't the meat have been possessed? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I was about to ask that. Yeah, yeah. I was about and to I yeah.
3: That. I was like right. I don't know. But awesome. you know? old
2: time religion. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, that's yeah. where this was in South Carolina, you said? yes was this
3: i can't say the name of the town on the air well, well, well
2: was it closer later. to was it <laughs> was it closer to appalachia or was it more the middle or was it the coast
3: closer to north carolina
2: Closer to north carolina okay
3: yeah i wasn't All allowed right. to give the exact location i guess for yeah, obvious reasons okay. but yeah. Yeah. but i would really tell you I'll, t- I'll dish later but oh okay. my gosh yeah it was it was really um you know i just I don't know what to make of it other than that people believe what they believe. Nobody, nobody was harmed other than the goats. Um, and depending on how you feel about meat and whatnot, right. They were cute too. It was like so sad, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) but, um, you know, they had a bad night. Oh, that was terrible. Oh,
2: there we go. (laughs) Yeah,
3: no, but yeah, it was really, it was really different. Something very different, but, um, you know, everybody seemed happy. It was a very joyous occasion afterward, but very exhausting. But, um, I, I, from what I take, she was healed after that, and so uh, very different than your typical you know priest crucifix, holy water, you know, it burns kind of thing <laughs>
2: and so you you've had you've had some interesting experiences, I guess, since you've written the book that uh
3: you. (laughs) you could call them that yeah it was i wasn't sure whether or not to include it in the book because i just thought well that that's gonna just sound tacky or superstitious but i thought well i'm just gonna be out with it there and just lay it all out on the line and so you know i uh I told people I'd be writing a book on, on evil and demons and possessions and whatnot. And I was like, Hey guys, this is gonna be interesting and fun and I was surprised how many people said, No, it's not. Don't don't do it or, you know, I was given instructions to listen to this song while you write, or burn this candle while you do it. A lot of people were worried about it and I thought, Well, that's superstitious and so, you know, I was like, Whatever. Well, I uh I started collecting research and I went to a thrift store um, doing what I call retail archaeology, looking for, um, I collect teacups and those sorts of things. And so I always look and, you know, I'm just walking through and I see this book on the floor. And it was face down and it just looked old and tattered. And I was like, what's this? And it said it was the Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology. And uh, I was like, oh, that is so cool because I wasn't familiar with the book. And I thought it was just really lucky seeing as though I just started researching this. And it was a buck 50. So I was like, yeah, bargain scored. So I got it. But then I brought it home and, you know, I, I got deeper into writing. And I started to realize that things were just not easy for me i was at a research library and i was looking through archives and my heart started racing and i was starting to shake all over and i collapsed and the librarian had to call an ambulance and get me to the hospital and my heart was beating at peak beats per minute Um, the hospital released me and said that they didn't really know what was going on, but that I had to go see a cardiologist. And I'm thinking, oh, great. So, you know, I go to another library. I, I did get an appointment, but it was, you know, not for another few weeks. So the next week I was at another library and I was looking at scans of 16th century devil's packs and the very same thing happened. And I did not want to be embarrassed by going on another ambulance ride. And so I tried to drive myself to the emergency room and Again, they just said, "We don't know." And so I went to the Cleveland Clinic, which is a very good hospital, and saw a lot of specialists. And um, you know, I was in the middle of trying to get this diagnosed. What is this? You know. And then I started to wake up in the middle of the night, having just the shakes, and my room would be freezing cold, and my heart would be going crazy. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm having panic attacks or something. And so after seeing a physician, and and you know, they said it wasn't a panic attack. I, sent me to an electrophysiologist and you know I they said your heart's perfectly healthy and I was like well it should be I'm not really doing anything crazy I'm, I'm kind of a health nut um, and I don't have history of that sort of thing and so I was just stumped but they said that um Something was interfering with the electrical pathways of my heart. Hmm. And I said, well, what? And they said, we don't know. Um, You have what's called a sudden onset of inappropriate sinus tachycardia. And I was like, all right then. And so they said, just take a beta blocker and, you know, there's nothing else we can do. And I said, okay. So that took a long time as I'm trying to write this. And I was having just, it seemed like hurdle after hurdle. And then while I was working late, I was just, I heard a big loud noise. And it was a, an electrical outlet that just burst into flames and it ignited a stack of magazines that I had sitting nearby. And, um, you know, had I been asleep and not up at three in the morning writing, my whole house would have just gone up in flames potentially. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm at this point kind of not really phased by this. I'm just thinking a lot of things are going on and, you know, and then my cat Bailey, who was just like, you know, my, study buddy. And um, I called him my research assistant. He had been with me through, I mean, he he was an old cat. So he'd been with me through all of school and homework and writing and life and everything you could imagine. And he was getting sicker and sicker during this whole book writing process. I was taking him to different veterinarians, and they didn't know really what they could do for him at this point. And I thought, well, you know, it's just going to be his time, I suppose. But some of them said, oh, he's going to be fine. Let him take this medicine. It was just another one of those stressful hurdles I was going through. And the night that I finished the book, Bailey literally collapsed. And he died the next morning, and it was just a really not not great ending to a otherwise, you know, okay book. Um, I would say. Wow. Yeah. And I so I'm not I wasn't like superstitious, but, you know, as I tell this and told this, I um, you know, I, I couldn't help but think that I was I don't know. You know, I had a friend who was a psychic that told me that there was maybe a negative entity that had attached itself to the old demonology book that I brought from the thrift store. And she theorized that maybe the entity jumped from the book to my poor cat, sort of that scapegoat thing again. And, um, you know, it's clearly a, a leap, but it was really reinforced when I spoke to my publisher afterwards and they said, you know, the funniest thing happened. um, We, we were late on publishing the book and I was like, Oh yeah. Tell me why that's funny again. And they said, well, because the night that we, the day that we were starting the presses to print the book, um, there was an electrical surge and it blew out all the printers and the whole place went down and we couldn't get it started for days. We were days late because of the electrical problems in the, in the place where they're printing the book. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I I, I can't say that, you know, I, I've had a bit of string of bad luck ever since writing this, I guess I could say. Even recently, wow. I posted on my Facebook, and I thought this would be gone, because I've had people since then do blessings and even an exorcism over the phone, which that's an interesting experience. So, an over-the-phone <laughs> exorcism, a blessing, I've had sage, I've had everything, you name it, and just last week, um, or no, yeah, well... Two weeks ago on a Sunday morning, uh, I I wake up and uh, to a a terrible storm and lightning and I get up and I look outside to see how bad the storm is. And there was such a huge clap of lightning that it lit up my whole house and it was almost blinding. And then shortly after I started to smell something a little like electricity and a little like, you know, wood smoke and i look out and the neighbor's house is on fire and so what they found i had to i had to get out of the house the firemen came thankfully very quick and they said you need to go cuz we need to inspect everything and so i had to go to the other side of the street and watch what could have been my house burning too i didn't know i'm in my pajamas i'm standing out there like what is going to happen come to find out a lightning bolt came down and hit the the woods behind my house caught the trees on fire which caught the shed on fire which caught the neighbor's house on fire and it burned down and i posted pictures of it because i'm (sighs) like well okay
2: (laughs) it's some uh Mm. some weird stuff going on did you get rid of that book
3: actually i did I, I I was like, you know, I'm just going to put this elsewhere for now and so we'll see what what happens to it. And and you know what I did with the book? And this is probably I'm probably going to burn in H-E double hockey sticks for this. Uh-oh. But there was one of there was one of those uh free little libraries. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Oh, you
1: passed it on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I thought well, you know. <laughs>
1: wow <laughs> Did, uh, were you were you around I, it's any, promoting literacy yeah exactly were, were you around any uh, strange potentially haunted uh, archaeological objects during any of the research of this book
3: you know i don't know i had somebody say it might have been this clock that i got i got a i got a i have a 200 year old pendulum right. clock but and no, like
1: ancient Sumerian idols ancient. embedded oh, no. with sacrificial. Uh...
3: Nope. <laughs> nothing like that. No, not at all. I wouldn't. I, At this point, I don't think I'd get within a yard of that, at least not in my home anymore. <laughs> I think this did kind of freak me out a no, little bit. No uh, unearthed Pazuzu or anything. No like unearthed that. Pazuzu. No, Pazuzu oh. can stay in the museum. Um, yeah. I think it's bad enough that he's on my book looking at me like this. So. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. freaked me out a little bit yeah and weirdly as soon as i was done with this book i never had another heart issue mm. I, I didn't i didn't have to i don't have to take my beta block or anything anymore it was everything was fine i'm back to jogging and everything's fine it was wild i don't know what happened and uh they said it, it you know the electrophysiologist said it's something with the electric and i'm like i didn't i didn't consider it but i started to think man doesn't that sound kind of i need to ask somebody about like poltergeist things or ghost things. I'm not 100% familiar with that realm, which is why when I speak about it in the book, I actually do so through a an interview with a paranormal researcher um, because I'm not a ghost hunter and I don't know what I'm looking for. And so I thought, well, gosh, this, this whole electrical manifestation of these problems and fire, um, whether it be through surges in my home or electrical problems in my heart or a lightning bolt coming down, um, that really made me I, I think there might be something there or I'm just speculating and, and freaking out. But to be safe, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to start writing the companion book to this and it's going, going to be angels, miracles and holy relics just to be on the safe side.
0: I
2: think that is a good way to do it. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lynn. This has been very great, very informative um, and a very interesting show. Can you tell people where they can contact you and also they can um, get your book?
3: Sure. It's, uh, you can go to my website. It's www.drheatherlynn.com. Um, and there you can find links to everything you need to find. Um, my books are available on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstores. Um, it's also an audio book. So that's nice too. Um, so anywhere you want to find the book, it's there. It's out everywhere right now. Um, but again, you can find me at Com.
2: Excellent. Okay. We're going to close this section out. Um, thank you for coming on. Thank you for
3: having me. It was great.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out. And guys, we'll be right back on Conspirator Normal. If
1: you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
2: We are recording. Have we been recording this whole time? I think we have. More for the... The secret files yeah the secret files the files no one will ever see we keep them with all of our stolen cuneiform yes yeah, yeah yeah so we did a patreon segment with dr. Lynn that was absolutely fascinating and juicy yeah let's let's talk a little bit about what we talked about so we can you know kind of take we, people over to the patreon
1: we concentrated on was well, something I've heard her talk about before the the pillage of antiquities in Iraq during the uh, invasion in 2003 okay yeah and And we got what what seems like yeah yeah we really got deep we started just talking about how um, a lot of speculation around how it seems as if it was an organized effort that could have connections to official capacities or uh, very wealthy people
2: yeah and it gets really really deep we'll just put it that way yeah so if you want to hear that you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal yes and uh one dollar will get you in to hear that as well as the other I think 20 plus episodes extra episodes that we have on there and yeah we've been pretty bad about getting stuff up up on patreon I know we said we would have one for the Rin show I decided not to put that up because it got a little too personal mm-hmm. so we did not put that up so that's why that, that never went up nope. no one yeah. asked why but you know i'm just I'm just telling you
1: but we're gonna be making more of an effort
2: yeah, we're gonna make more of an effort and we do have a lot going on especially with planning for the conference We'll talk about the conference a little bit. We're in things are really coming together for the conference and uh, we'll we got the strange realities 2019 conference coming up October 19th here in Nashville. Mm-hmm and Guys, we've got a whole list of people. We got Tim Banal we got uh, Joshua Cutchin, Timothy Rinner. Can we give a rundown
1: of what everyone's talking about?
2: Yeah, we can. Uh let's get we'll give a quick rundown of what we are talking what they're going to talk about. Um Ja, well, actually Timinal, we'll start with him, go down the list. Tim is going to talk about the he mentioned this on the last episode, the rise and fall of the flat earth theory. You're right. Okay, how it how it came to be. And how it came to be really, really popular a few years ago and now it's kind of like declining again. So he's gonna talk about that. He's given that talk a, a few times. Um, we're gonna to talk to And he
1: is a very entertaining guy.
2: Uh extremely, yes. Um Guy Malone is gonna be there, good friend Guy, who was one of our first was one of the first guests on Conspiranormal back in the day. Wow. Uh, I think he was on like the sixth episode or something. I've known Guy for, for a good long time. He's going to cool. talk about Roswell 1947, when the mythology is stripped away, what facts remain. And so this is basically a kind of non-extraterrestrial hypothesis of what maybe crashed at Roswell in 1947. Yeah. I've seen him give this talk in Roswell a couple of years ago, and uh, it's very good. It may be the longest talk that uh, we have there. Okay. Uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt is going to be there as well, and he's going to discuss Cornish legends, UFO sightings over GCHQ, which is a UK and joint UK and US secret facility, Ooh. and otherworldly nature of mermaids, and true personal account of a ghostly surfer. So yes. Mark is our friend from England, our really good friend, and he actually spends a good portion of his time now here in the US and Illinois so he's going to be coming down from there actually we're not bringing him from we're not bringing him in from the UK but uh he's really knowledgeable on Cornish Cornish folklore Cornish legends he lives in Cornwall which is kind of like the tip of England um really interesting place we got our good friend Joshua Cutchen, and we're going to talk about alien hybrid lore and his talk is titled, this is all the information I've got right now. Yeah. Stock and trade exp- expressions of the changeling stock motif and alien hybrid lore. Ooh. Okay. And we've got our good friend, Joe, who's going to talk about how to find ghosts at his website, ghostpro.us,
1: And hopefully provide some live demonstration.
2: Yeah. Well, that's what we're going well, to, that's, that's what we're going to see. Hopefully we're going to see some ghosts that may happen. Uh, Timothy Renner is also going to be there. And Tim is going to talk about his book Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. And that's a specifically a case in 1920 to 21 Pennsylvania gorilla flap. Mm, yeah. So he's going to talk about that. You get squatchy. And I also added not too long ago Zach Hunt, who you know is more of a kind of a I guess you could call him a more liberal Christian researcher and author. And I think that he's going to talk about his book on Unraptured, which we did a show on not yeah. too long ago. So that's going to be kind of a little bit of a different kind of presentation. And I'm going to be speaking. <gasps> Myself, Mr. Adam Sane here. Own. Yeah, I'm going to be speaking. Um, I am think what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a presentation about UFO alien abductions and the association to mind control. Yes. And it being actually a mind control, I'm, looking at, I'm going to look at three cases. I'm not going to say what those are right now. So if you want to find out what I'm going to be talking about, you're going to have to come to the Strange Realities Conference 2019.
1: And to do that, you can go right now to strangerealitiesconference.com. And we're really relying on having a decent amount of uh, pre-sales to help us forecast kind of, uh, you know, the... Who all is going to come out? So if you can, you know, if you are planning on coming, the sooner you do that, you know, it can
2: be a big help to us. Right. Exactly. Um, which is only $30, 30 bucks rather. It's $40 at the door. Yes. But one more thing that we're going to, that also there's going to be a joint presentation. I believe that's going to cap off the night. Mm -hmm. That's between Timothy Renner and Joshua Kutchen. And that is about their book, forthcoming book, or actually I think now books where the footprints end. And that's high strangeness and folklore and Bigfoot sightings. Which is a paradigm-believable Yeah. Paradigm-obliterating, shifting, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> that's what that's going to be, guys. Um, and there's also a live question and answer panel, which will also be a recording live of recording. this podcast. So if you
1: want to get on Conspirator Normal,
2: that's the way to do it. And there may be an extra special guest involved in that recording. I'm not going to say who at the moment, but uh, well, I'll just leave it there. Um, so that is the Strange Realities Conference 2019. Remember, guys, that is at SIR Nashville. That's Studio Instrumental Rentals. In case you want to know what that stands for, it's just not Sir Nashville. There's no you know, Arthurian Knight named Sir Nashville. That's at 1101 Cherry Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee, 37203. And if you guys want to contact us, you can send it to theconspiranormal at gmail.com.
1: Right. And and uh, as far or as... Or on
2: any of us on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and anyone wondering about accommodations, we have several suggestions we're going to be putting up. Uh, the. I, I would say probably the best way to do it would be to stay at a hotel or motel on the uh, outskirts of town. Not, not too much of... It's not actually very far because Nashville is pretty small, but maybe by the airport or some neighborhoods we're going to suggest to get a cheaper deal because we're such a tourist destination that uh, staying downtown hotels in Nashville is, you know, can be very expensive. So we want to try to mitigate that. Uh, I'd also recommend Airbnbs. There's tons yep. of Airbnbs in Nashville all throughout. And, and whatever neighborhood you stay in, uh, it's not going to be too
2: far because we're not really a... A
1: big city that we're growing.
2: Well, and and there are actually a couple of people that are going to be there at the conference that have gotten their tickets already. They're actually saying an Airbnb, so we cool. do recommend that.
1: Yeah, maybe getting um, together and communicating with each other, and uh, you know, on like the uh, normal Facebook, looking for people trying to you know share Airbnbs and stuff like that. Because you know it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty fun. You can probably network
2: and do things like that too. I would suggest um, two, two or three places that are in kind of like my end of town. I live on the east side of Nashville, so if you look at like a map, and um, I live on like the east side of I forty. Uh, this is for people that obviously are not from here and are getting a getting a hotel. Anything by the airport is good. I think that that will be fairly inexpensive than staying downtown right. or in the Opry Mills. Opry Mills. Um, Hotel, which would be like super expensive. I think other places around Opry Mills Hotel, which is off of Briley Parkway, I mean, Opryland, Opryland. Yeah. yeah, that's. I think those are pro- those are probably okay. Yeah, just but just reach out airport, to us. Yeah, and, and there's a few down. And if you guys have any questions, and we're gonna have things on the website too to maybe just like have some hotel suggestions that people can go to. There's also along where we are is Eighth Avenue in Nashville. And there's several different places to eat along that strip. Oh, yeah. Some got really good, good places. Um, so I think Hattie B's is down that yeah, we got Hot
1: Chicken. There's some other yeah. good soul food places. Um, Arnold's is a really good meat and three. So it's plenty, plenty of good food.
2: Okay, guys. And uh, that's it for right now. But uh, we really want you guys to come out. It's really cheap. It's going to be a really good time. And once again, that you can find all that information on www.strangerealitiesconference.com. All right. I think that's it, guys. I think we're going to close out the show. Um, next week is going to be interesting. I don't know quite what to expect, so I'm glad you're going to be here. Yeah. Because we're going to talk to Stephanie Quick, and we're going to talk about sex magic. <gasps> this started out as her like little um, rebuttal video. It was kind of like Cool Moody and Hello Cool J back in the day. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sarah feels laughing at me. But so we're going to get her on to talk about that. And uh, I don't quite know what to expect, but I think it'll be pretty interesting. So we got some really we'll great try, stuff.
1: We'll try, we may have to make that one parental advisory. It, more than likely. Because yeah. we want to get real deep and that's going to be difficult. Yeah,
2: but it will be explicit. Yeah, that's true. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Again, uh, if you want to support the show, Conspiranormal, www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. That's our Patreon. If you don't want to leave a recurring payment, which we understand, you can go to our website. You can do a donation. I'm going to try to get a PayPal.me and get that set up so it goes straight to our PayPal. Uh, That's that's going to be up there. Also, another way that you guys can support the show. We haven't uh, really been pushing this lately, but leave a review please please. preferably a five star we haven't uh, gotten a review i think since june just us versus the algorithms and you guys can help Yeah, and you guys can help so and also our youtube channel is out there too conspire normal podcast check that out subscribe it even if you don't listen Please, and, and, and if anyone subscribers has a, as possible,
1: If anyone hasn't been to the Conspiranormal website in a while, that's pretty revamped and we're putting all, a blog for every episode right. and hopefully be doing some more blogging and stuff after we get over this crazy uh, schedule for the conference and
2: Right, so yeah, that's on there um, I've actually, we've started putting up just a brief description and a little bit more fleshing out that description on the Conspiranormal website and you can also listen to the YouTube video live from there too so, all right, guys. Thanks for listening, and well, we'll be back next week talking a little sex magic mm-hmm. on Conspiranormal.
1: If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon www.patreon.com conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our youtube channel conspiranormal podcast